Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. My name is Tori Telfer. I have written a book called Lady Killers about female serial killers, and I am currently working on a book about female con artists, con women, if you will. And so you could say I'm a bit of a one-trick pony. When I talk to people at parties and they ask me what I do and I say, you know, I write and podcast about female criminals... I usually get one of two responses. I either get, oh my gosh, yes, I'm a murderino. Tell me everything you know about John Wayne Gacy. (laughs) I don't actually know a ton about John Wayne Gacy, but I do have one very good John Wayne Gacy anecdote that a really cool 80-year-old woman gave me once. Um, Or I get the sort of response that's just like, okay, that's a little bit disturbing. Have you ever considered taking your life in a different direction? So I'm glad to have this podcast as a safe space where I can talk to you about (laughs) this subject. Uh, Anyway, thank you for being here. I'm really excited for today's theme because um, it's, well, researching this, oh my gosh, first of all, took me 10 years because there's so much information (laughs) available about this group of people. Second of all, It made me obsessed with the subject matter, and I am now overflowing with anecdotes that I can't tell anyone about for fear of seeming like the person who's always making it about herself. And third of all, um, I'm going to be honest, I teared up a couple points researching and writing this. There is a serious kind of Romeo and Juliet-esque tragic undertone to all of this. So get your handkerchiefs out. Ladies and gents, get your handkerchiefs out. Before we dive in, I just want to say, um, don't forget I have a Patreon. My Patreon is criminal, or sorry, no, patreon.com slash criminal broads. And it is there you can go if you want to support me in my labor of love that is researching this podcast. And you can also get, you know, the occasional interview with an expert. Um, at the $10 level, you'll get a really cool print by Dame Darcy, etc. So check that out. And also, please, if you're loving the podcast, leave an iTunes review. It's so helpful and would be so awesome. All right. Um, Where are we traveling to today? I always have to think and stop and think for a moment, remember which era we're in. Oh, how could I forget? We are diving straight into America in the 1930s where, let's just say, a lot of hardship was happening. And this hardship was affecting young people in a particular way. And everyone was kind of trying to find themselves. And in the ensuing depression and chaos, um, a, a certain, a small group of young people was kind of realizing that if they wanted to live the life they wanted to live, they would have to do it on their own terms, their own very dangerous terms. All right, let's get started. wanted was a normal life with her husband. Her dream was an innocent dream. The house, the yard, the lazy days spent gazing into each other's eyes, the peace, the routine, the kids. She wanted till death do us part in the old traditional sense. Two lifelong lovers dying in their sleep at 85 or 90, a peaceful coda to a life well lived. She wanted this so badly that she was terrified she wouldn't get it at all. Late at night, listening to the wind in the trees, she would sense that death was going to part them far, far sooner than she had ever imagined, that death was coming for them, fast and merciless. She thought about it so often that she couldn't sleep. And then, one day, death did knock at her door. A man's voice from outside said, Open up! 
and fire rained down from heaven, and before Blanche knew what was happening, she was in the back of a getaway car driven by one of the most feared criminals in the entire country, and her husband was bleeding so badly that she could hear his blood sloshing, sloshing, sloshing on the car's floorboards. Everything she had ever feared was coming true. Blanche Barrow was a tiny doll of a person. Those who knew her said that there was something about her that made you want to protect her. She was so small and seemed so fragile, and she had that cloud of dark hair around her little face and those big eyes. She seemed like someone who might crumble under your finger if you pressed too hard. You wouldn't necessarily want her, say, saving your life. She was born Benny Iva Blanche Caldwell on New Year's Day, 1911, in Garvin, Oklahoma. Her father was a farmer and a preacher. Her mother was a wild 16-year-old who soon left them for greener pastures. Blanche was raised by her father, who spoiled her, and she had a troubled relationship with her mother from then on out. In those days, the divorce rate had risen 692% in six years, and her mother's many, many divorces were certainly contributing to this figure. Blanche didn't like this about her mother, this tendency to bounce from man to man. Because for Blanche, love was a very serious thing. But when Blanche first got married, it wasn't for love. Her absentee mother pressured her into marrying a rich older man named John Calloway when she was only 16. Calloway was a nightmare of a husband, so emotionally and physically abusive that he left Blanche unable to have children, which was something she mourned for the rest of her life. After a year of marriage, Blanche escaped and ran away with one of her girlfriends to West Dallas, Texas, which was about three hours southwest of home. She was too afraid to file for divorce from Calloway right away, but at least she was free of him. Now, Blanche probably didn't realize it at the time, but she was living in a hugely important moment in U.S. and global history. In late October 1929, the New York Stock Exchange shuddered and groaned under $5 billion in losses on what became known as Black Thursday, and the market crashed even harder on the following Tuesday, Black Tuesday, which marked the beginning of America's slide into the Great Depression. Across the Atlantic, a man named Adolf Hitler was gathering more and more power in Germany. And in the same poor neighborhood where Blanche was staying, a handsome young man and his handsome younger brother were growing increasingly serious about living a life of crime. November 11th, 1929, was cloudy and 72 degrees, a nice break from the Texas sun and a perfect day to go for a walk. So Blanche went for a walk, and on that walk, she passed a very attractive man. The man walking toward her was named Marvin Ivan Barrow, but he went by Buck, a nickname his aunt gave him because he was so darn fast as a kid, fast as a horse. He was 26 eight years older than her, and like her, he'd been married before, twice actually, divorced both times. Some called Buck a hothead. Some said he was a little too fond of his alcohol. His own sister said he was always ready for a fight. He was certainly sexy, with a sort of animalistic appeal to him. Blanche must have picked up on all of this right away there in the street, the current of wildness running through him, his dark good looks. Buck looked at her, big eyes and high cheekbones, and liked what he saw, too. They started hanging out and found that they seemed to fit together perfectly. She called him Daddy, he called her Baby, and she knew the nicknames were sort of silly, but that was how they felt about each other, and when they talked about the future, that's how they saw their roles. He would protect her forever, and she would be there forever to be protected. Now... Buck wasn't what you might call a totally upstanding citizen. He'd been arrested before for auto theft and burglary, and when he and his younger brother teamed up, the two of them had a tendency to get into real trouble. 
Cops called them the Barrow Boys. At one point, they were caught with an entire truckload of stolen holiday turkeys. Less than three weeks after he met Blanche, Buck was wounded during one of their burglaries and sentenced to four years in the Texas State Penitentiary. He served two months, escaped, and came right back to Blanche, who helped him hide from the law and even accompanied him on several robberies, although she would take pains to hide all this a few years later, saying she had no idea about his crimes for ages and ages. About a year and a half after Buck escaped, once Blanche was officially divorced herself, they got married on July 3, 1931. But soon Blanche grew nervous about the fact that Buck was an escaped convict. She was tired of living under the shadow of his possible recapture, and both she and his mother, Kimi Barrow, thought it would be better for him to just finish out his sentence and be done with the whole thing. And so, everyone at the penitentiary was shocked when, right after Christmas, 1931, they saw two women drive up and drop off a penitent-looking man right at the front door. When Blanche saw him later, in his prison clothes, she burst into tears. I knew I was making it harder for him, she wrote later in her memoir, but I couldn't get myself under control. While Buck finished out his sentence, Blanche lived with his parents, but she and Kimi found themselves getting on each other's nerves. They were both strong-minded women, and each of them resented the other one for taking up space in their beloved Buck's heart. Plus, Kimi wouldn't let Blanche keep her dog, Snowball, at the house, which Blanche resented. So Buck's sister got Blanche a job at a beauty shop some ways away, and she moved out. The months passed slowly. After closing up at the beauty shop on Thursday, March 23, 1933, Blanche decided to head to the post office to see if Buck had written to her. He hadn't, which made her nervous. On the way back, she ran into her boss, who was grinning from ear to ear. A telegram for her had just arrived at the beauty shop. It was from Buck. Baby, I'll be home to you as soon as I can get there, it said. He had been pardoned by the governor, and he was out early. That very night, he crept into Blanche's bedroom and woke her up with kisses. She thought she was dreaming him. The newly reunited couple spent the next few days seeing family and dreaming about the future. Buck had been given a full pardon, which meant that his crime was wiped from his record. In the eyes of the law, he wasn't a criminal anymore. It was the perfect moment to start over. On Saturday, they were visiting Blanche's mother, who'd been taking care of little Snowball, and after catching up with her, they crawled into bed sometime before midnight. They had just started drifting off to sleep when they heard a knock at the front door. On the doorstep, three young people stood there, swaying slightly. They'd been drinking. They carried sawed-off shotguns. One of them was a teenager named W.D. Jones. The other two were young, bitter, and deeply in love. Even then, their names were linked together, and you couldn't say one without the other. Bonnie and Clyde. By the time Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow burst into Blanche's bedroom, they'd been together for three years and had already been involved in a lot of crime, from theft to murder. Because of these crimes, Clyde, Buck's younger brother by seven years, had experienced the worst part of the law, repeated harassment by police when he wasn't in prison and inhumane abuse when he was. He'd already served time at the notoriously awful Eastman Prison Farm, where he was abused by the guards and continually raped by a fellow prisoner. And when he came out of there, he was a different man. He would never trust the law again. He was thirsty for revenge, and he'd already decided that the only way out for him was in a blaze of gunfire. And his one great love, Bonnie Parker, a girl who always thought she'd be famous, was right there with him. As their biographer Jeff Gwynn wrote, Clyde and Bonnie both saw lives devoted to crime as offering possibilities that going straight couldn't. Clyde wanted control. Bonnie wanted excitement. They weren't fools. They realized that there would be inevitable consequences. But they'd had enough of hoping their lives would change for the better. 
Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were insignificant because of who they were, but they would force the world to acknowledge them because of what they did. Now, Bonnie's mother thought Clyde had wrenched Bonnie away from her loving family, and Clyde's mother felt pretty much the same way about Bonnie. But the two of them were inseparable, no matter what the world threw at them. And so when a really drunk Bonnie crawled into Blanche's bed, wanting to gossip and vent about how lonely it was to be the only woman in Clyde's roving gang of criminals, Blanche was annoyed because she'd never really liked Bonnie, but she also related to the girl. Because the way Bonnie felt about Clyde was exactly the way Blanche felt about Buck. As Bonnie and Blanche talked and W.D. kept guard, Clyde and Buck were brainstorming. First, Clyde tried to convince Buck to raid the Eastman prison farm with him. When that didn't work, Clyde suggested that, okay, well, maybe he and Blanche could come along with the gang to Joplin, Missouri, where they could rent an apartment, hang out for a while, and take a sort of family vacation, albeit the sort of family vacation where you had to hide every time a cop came by. In her memoir, Blanche insists that Buck finally agreed to go along with Bonnie and Clyde not out of any criminal intent, but because he thought he could convince Clyde to surrender to the law, the way he himself had a few years earlier. Again and again, Blanche takes pains to paint Buck as a saint, someone who never wanted to be involved in crime, but just found himself in these situations. Years later, though, W.D. would disagree with this hagiography. He said that Clyde would have never surrendered in a million years and that Buck already knew this, and so he was only telling Blanche what she wanted to hear. Either way, it worked. Blanche and Buck hopped into a car with puffy little Snowball and headed to Missouri to play house with a trio of criminals. In Joplin, Missouri, the five of them, Blanche, Buck, Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. Jones, well, six of them if you count Snowball, rented a two-bedroom apartment above a garage at 3347 and a half Oak Ridge Drive. They moved in on April 1st and settled down to enjoy themselves. Bonnie and Buck liked to eat pickled pig's feet and olives. Clyde wolfed down French fries and English peas swimming in cream and black pepper. W.D. would eat anything, and Blanche watched the debauchery, vaguely disapproving. She and Bonnie didn't always get along. Bonnie liked to get drunk, sleep in, lounge about, and work on her poetry, and so Blanche found herself doing most of the cooking and the dishwashing. But sometimes they bonded over being the only women of the group, and they liked to go on extravagant shopping sprees, decorating their apartment with quilts, feather pillows, dishes, silverware, and all sorts of trinkets. Blanche remembered later, Every time we went into town, we came back with our arms loaded with ashtrays, glassware, small picture frames, and anything else we saw that was pretty or that we wanted or needed, plus a lot of things we didn't need. The group vacillated between adult debauchery, led by Bonnie and Clyde and Buck and W.D., and childlike innocence, led by Blanche. They drank beer and whiskey, they played poker, they stayed up late making noise, and they were always cleaning their guns— Blanche didn't approve of any of this. But then they'd spend hours goofing off in front of the camera as Blanche took their photos, or playing jigsaw puzzles, which Blanche introduced to the group. Now, all the trinkets and the jigsaw puzzles and the peas and cream cost money, and so every now and then the men would sneak out to rob a gas station or a little mom-and-pop store, coming back with cash, guns, binoculars for Blanche, and stolen cars. The five of them may have been play-acting, pretending to have this elegant adult life. They even paid for a service to pick up and drop off their laundry. But their real life simmered away on the back burner. At night, you could hear the Barrow brothers scheming and arguing about what they should do next. Even though Buck had committed several robberies since receiving that full pardon, he still technically had his clean slate in the eyes of the law, and there were a million different paths his future could take. Clyde, though, felt very differently about his future. He believed firmly that it was far too late for him to go straight. If the law caught him, or if he surrendered, he'd be headed straight for the electric chair. And life in prison, if he got it, would have been no better. Clyde would rather die on the road than ever set foot in a prison again. 
After almost two weeks in the little apartment, Clyde decided that it was time to move on. The neighbors were getting suspicious of these five nocturnal young people, and he knew it was safest to stay on the move. Buck and Blanche decided that when the group left, they'd go back to Texas to start their real, law-abiding life together, and so by the afternoon of April 13th, everyone was busy preparing for departure. Buck filled the car with gas, Blanche was packing, Clyde and W.D. were out stealing a car, and Bonnie, well, Bonnie was lazing about in her nightgown, revising a poem called The Story of Suicide Sal and asking Blanche to boil her an egg. Even though everyone was doing their own thing, Blanche felt a nervous energy reverberating through the house. She didn't know that local police were making their way towards the apartment at that very moment, convinced that the five of them were bootleggers. She just knew that they all had the jitters, as she put it later. And then, as Clyde and W.D. pulled into the garage in a new stolen car, the sound of gunfire sliced through the air and Blanche heard Clyde yell, Oh lordy, let's get started! In the ensuing hail of bullets, the Barrow Gang scrambled for the stolen car, leaving most of their possessions behind them. All three of the men in the gang were hit, but their injuries weren't fatal. The cops, however, weren't so lucky. Two of them were killed by blasts from Clyde's shotgun. Blanche saw one of the bodies while she was escaping. It was Harry McGinnis, a local policeman. Oh, what a horrible sight to see a human body torn apart like that by shotgun bullets, she wrote. I shiver now as I think of it and can still see the vision of a man lying there with what looked like his brains blown out and running down his shoulders and onto the ground. As both sides continued to exchange fire, little Snowball panicked and started running down the street. Blanche tried to follow her, but someone dragged her back into the car, and the gang screeched out of there as Snowball kept on running. Blanche never saw her sweet dog again. This gunfight changed everything for Blanche and Buck, and they knew it. As Clyde drove away, Blanche sat in the back of the car, stained with W.D.'s blood and in a state of shock. I could see all my hopes and dreams tumbling down around me, she wrote. She began crying and pulling at her hair. There was no real law-abiding life in Texas for them anymore. They were now officially on the run. The next few weeks were a blur of travel. The gang had to get out of Missouri, where they were being hunted as cop killers, and so they drove and drove as W.D. groaned in pain. Clyde and Buck weren't seriously wounded, but a bullet had passed all the way through W.D.'s right side, and they didn't have anything stronger than aspirin to give him. If they needed money for food, they'd rob a service station or sometimes a bank. On the road, Blanche couldn't stop herself from occasionally bursting into tears. Her nightmare had come true. Buck was a criminal again. Blanche was also finding out what the rest of America wouldn't realize for a long time, that the on-the-run lifestyle of Bonnie and Clyde was anything but glamorous. The car was so full of guns that no one could sit comfortably, and it was so small that they had to sit on each other's laps. They were too skittish to stay in motels, and so they often slept in the car and ate their meals on the run. They were living like animals, according to Jeff Gwynn, sleeping in their car in the woods, bathing in creeks, letting bullet wounds heal themselves, and fearing attack or capture every time a twig snapped or a passing car slowed. Everyone was so stressed out and uncomfortable that they ended up fighting constantly, and sometimes it seemed like Buck and Clyde were actually going to kill each other. Blanche didn't think Buck would ever really kill his brother, but she didn't trust Clyde. If Clyde had shot Buck, he would have had to kill me too, she wrote. Of course, I think that would have been a pleasure to him. He would have gotten me first because I wouldn't have been quick enough to shoot him face to face, and I would never have shot him in the back, even if he was a dirty rat and would as soon shoot someone in the back as face them. But then, if he had shot Buck and I managed to shoot him, Bonnie would have shot me anyway. 
That convoluted hypothetical is a perfect description of the mood inside that car, a tangled knot of love and anger and loyalty, strengthened by blood ties and a common enemy, exacerbated by fear, and strained to the point of insanity by the two couples who didn't want to live if their partner died. As they were all concentrated on getting away and fighting and panicking and trying to keep W.D. alive, they didn't realize that their legend, or at least the legend of Bonnie and Clyde, had started crackling like wildfire across the country. Back at the Joplin apartment, police found Blanche and Buck's marriage license, Buck's pardon, Bonnie's poetry, which papers called Morbid and Gangster, and perhaps the one thing that contributed to that legend more than anything else— rolls of undeveloped film from Blanche's camera. When the film was processed, America saw image after image of these young, snappy-looking desperados clowning around, mugging for the camera, and looking desperately in love. The most shocking photos were the ones of Bonnie, pretending to hold Clyde at gunpoint as he looked at her adoringly, leaning against their stolen car, and brandishing a gun at her hip with a cigar in her mouth. A woman with a gun and a cigar and a man she wasn't married to. This was shocking and titillating. For a crime-obsessed public, these two were nearly perfect celebrities. Yeah, they were bad, but didn't they make it look so good? The other three people who were in that getaway car were largely ignored. April bled into May, May hurried into June, and still the group was on the run. They lost W.D. at one point when he hopped out to steal a car, and then reunited with him a few weeks later. Blanche's thoughts were totally consumed with her fear that Buck would die, a fear that seemed more and more likely with every robbery, every shootout, every twig snapping in the woods. Whenever I thought about the possibility of losing Buck, I burst out crying, she wrote. I was an awful crybaby and must have been a burden to all of them, but I would have rather been shot through the heart than to have lost Buck. She was so stressed and sleep-deprived that her weight plummeted to 85 pounds. It was becoming pretty obvious to Bonnie and Clyde that Blanche, with her continual crying and her paranoia, wasn't the greatest asset to the Barrow Gang. Sometimes they let their feelings be known. Bonnie screamed at Blanche once for being excess baggage, saying that she was afraid to shoot coppers. That last part, at least, was certainly true. But Blanche did have a couple of things going for her, even if they weren't as flashy as, say, Clyde's skill with a shotgun. She was able to stay awake at night and keep watch to see if anyone was coming for them. And she was able to run errands for the gang, since her face was the least well-known of the group. She'd go into little towns for fried chicken or travel back to Texas to drop off money and messages with their families, and no one took a second glance at the diminutive woman with the dark hair. They were looking for a Bonnie, blonde, reckless, good with guns, not a Blanche. By now, Buck had adopted Clyde's stance that things were gone too far for him to turn himself in, and that he too would be on the run until the inevitable moment when he'd go out in a blaze of glory. Bonnie had had this attitude for quite some time. She and Clyde even had a suicide pact. W.D., despite his youth, was already a hardened criminal, and surely he knew that death was likely. And believe it or not, despite her wailing and hair-pulling, Blanche was right there with them. She didn't like it, she didn't romanticize it, but she expected to go down in a hail of bullets with Buck, just like Bonnie expected to go down in a hail of bullets with Clyde. Despite their morbid resignation, the group did find time for fun. After all, they were young and in love, and sometimes that young and in love part took over. At one point, Buck and Blanche snuck off to Florida for a little vacation, where they took scandalous photos on the beach, Blanche in a new swimsuit showing yards of leg, and posed together for a picture where Blanche sits on Buck's lap, wearing a pretty dress and high heels tied with a little bow. In the photo, they gaze adoringly at each other, baby and daddy. Much of their life on the run was hardship, but the occasional new outfits were a perk of the job, 
Once, Blanche treated herself to a snazzy new look of riding breeches and high leather riding boots. But this sort of fun couldn't last, and they all knew it. Everything took a very serious turn on June 10th, when Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. were flying down a pitch-black road, with Clyde driving recklessly, as he often did. He didn't see the sign that said detour, didn't see that the bridge ahead of them just didn't exist anymore, and before anyone could do anything, their car was in the air, spinning and spinning, and then crashing down onto the dry riverbed below. The car's battery burst, and acid poured out all over Bonnie's leg, instantly scalding her and eating away at her flesh down to the bone. By the time Blanche and Buck caught up with them later that night, everyone was pretty certain that Bonnie was going to die. She was screaming, moaning, twisting in agony, covered in cuts and burns, her chest caved in, and that horrible flash of white bone peeking out of her burning leg. But she was too famous to be taken to a hospital. She was Bonnie Parker, the cover of every pulp detective magazine in the country. And so Clyde tried to treat her with drugstore salve and bandages, and even took the massive risk of bringing in two separate doctors to treat her and traveling to Texas to bring back her sister, Billy Mace, to nurse her. Slowly, Bonnie healed. She didn't heal correctly. Her leg drew up and she was never able to walk normally again. She got addicted to the painkillers that one doctor gave her and then had to be weaned off them. She lashed out at Blanche. She moaned whenever the car went over bumps in the road. But she didn't die of her wounds. And after a while, Billie Jean, who'd struck up a little romance with W.D. by that point, was sent home. The gang continued their peripatetic existence, stockpiling guns, sleeping in shifts, driving thousands of miles to nowhere, and worrying about what was coming. July 18th, the gang rented two cabins in Platte City, Missouri. As Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. rested in one cabin, Blanche and Buck daydreamed about the future in the other, whispering about how maybe they should go to Canada, get away from it all, hole up in a mountain cabin somewhere. Then their conversation took a darker turn. Blanche told Buck that if she was killed first, she didn't want him to risk his life by bringing her body home to Texas. Just leave me someplace, she said. It doesn't matter. Later that night, Blanche went into town for soap and fresh towels and noticed that everyone in town seemed to be staring at her. It gave her an awful feeling, like something was going to go very bad very soon. Everyone acted as though I might pull out a machine gun and turn it on them at any minute, she wrote. She wasn't imagining things. Local authorities were, at that moment, running the gang's license plate, finding out their car was stolen, and planning an attack, sure that the five people in the cabins were the Barrow Gang themselves. Blanche didn't want to stay for a second night, she was so nervous, but Clyde insisted that they'd be safe and they'd leave in the morning. So she did her laundry and crawled into bed next to Buck. Outside, the authorities silently surrounded the cabins. Blanche kissed Buck goodnight. She closed her eyes. She had just started to fall asleep when someone knocked at the door. Open up! People watching the scene from the outside remember seeing gunfire stream from the cabin's windows in blazing arches. As the authorities returned fire, Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. tumbled into their car, which was in the garage right next to their cabin, meaning they didn't have to expose themselves to the authorities' gunfire in order to get in. But Buck and Blanche, who were staying in the other cabin, were going to have to run through the open air to reach the car, and as they began to do just that, shots exploded all around them, and Buck dropped to the ground. A bullet had hit him in the left temple and burst out of his forehead. Part of his skull flew off. His brain was exposed to the air. Even over the roar of the gunfire, 
officers could hear the sound of Blanche screaming. Here's how Jeff Gwynn described what happened next. Ever since she unwillingly joined the gang back in late March, Blanche Barrow repeatedly engaged in whining and other petty behavior. But now, she proved she had courage. With bullets flying all around her, Blanche stopped to loop her arm under Buck's waist. Skinny and scared as she was, Blanche still helped Clyde drag Buck into the car, while W.D. provided covering fire. Blanche had always wondered what she'd do if Buck were mortally wounded, and now she had her answer. She wouldn't run. She wouldn't hide. She wouldn't burst into tears and panic. She would save him. As the authorities' guns continued to roar at them, the Barrow gang tore away in their car. In the back seat, Blanche bent double over her husband's body, shielding him from the hail of bullets. One of those bullets smashed through the back window of the car, sending thousands of shards of glass straight toward Blanche's face and right into her eyes. Her world went black. Blood started streaming down her cheeks. They got my eyes, she screamed. I can't see. Clyde drove on into the night. After driving for a few miles, Clyde pulled off down a gravel road and stopped the car to get a sense of just how wounded everyone was. The prognosis was grim. W.D. had been hit, though it wasn't bad. Bonnie was still struggling with her car accident wounds. Blanche's eyes were full of glass, though she could still see out of her right eye, but barely. And Buck was the worst of all. He was bleeding so much that his blood sloshed around the car floor as Blanche tried to stop the bleeding by holding her fingers tightly in the wound. Crazed with worry, Clyde bought sunglasses for Blanche, hydrogen peroxide, which they poured directly into Buck's skull, and bandages, antiseptic, and aspirin for everyone. They rested briefly that night and then kept barreling on into Iowa, where Clyde found an abandoned park near Dexter and set up a makeshift camp for everyone among the trees. They made a bed for Buck out of car cushions, and W.D. and Clyde snuck off to dig him a grave just in case. Blanche was in such agony that she choked every time she tried to eat something. Buck was slowly slipping away from me, she wrote, and there wasn't anything I could do about it, living like a wounded, trapped animal in the woods without the care of a doctor or a bed to lie down on. She was too afraid to sleep, though in an attempt to keep Buck calm, she'd lay down next to him and pretend that she was dozing off. Her eyes were killing her, and she could feel the shards of glass still stuck in them. One of her pupils had an especially large piece of glass in it, and though Clyde and Bonnie each tried to remove it with tweezers, they couldn't get it out. Meanwhile, Buck was barely conscious, and sometimes he would try to take the bandage off his head and touch his wound so that Blanche would have to physically restrain him. I could hardly keep from screaming with the fear that gripped me, she wrote. How could I give him up like this? But Buck didn't die that night, or the next, and after a while, Clyde started to think about taking Buck and Blanche back to Texas to fulfill an old promise that he'd made to his mother, that if one of her sons ever got seriously wounded, the other son would take him home to die. By July 23rd, Clyde had decided that they'd leave the next day, and he and W.D. went out to steal a new batch of getaway cars. None of them realized that it was too late. A man wandering through the park had seen their campsite and all their bloody bandages. He told the local night marshal, the night marshal told the county sheriff, and the county sheriff realized he was dealing with the Barrow Gang. Swiftly and quietly, the law began to close in on the group in the woods for a third time. On the night of the 23rd, the entire gang was uneasy. A screech owl kept swooping over them, wailing like a witch, and Blanche couldn't shake the feeling that someone was creeping towards them. 
Every time a twig broke or a breeze rustled the branches overhead, the gang leapt for their guns. Near morning, Blanche finally managed to sleep for a few uneasy minutes, but woke up when Buck started hallucinating, talking about how there were soldiers, there were soldiers all around him. It was as though Buck, caught halfway between life and death, knew what was happening before anyone else did. W.D. started to make breakfast. Blanche tried to tell Buck that he was imagining things. And then Clyde screamed, Look out! as bullets exploded from the surrounding trees. The gang raced for their car. They tried to drive away, but the car got stuck and everyone was forced to escape by foot up a nearby hill. W.D., Bonnie, and Clyde raced ahead, all of them already wounded, but Buck could barely move, and so Blanche put her arm around her husband's waist and the two of them went slowly up the hill. Before long, Buck fainted, and though Blanche screamed for Clyde to come back and help her, the rest of the gang kept running, and soon enough, Buck and Blanche were all alone. When Buck came to, he told Blanche to leave him there, but she ignored him and dragged him the rest of the way up the hill as he continued to slip in and out of consciousness. When they reached the top, they stopped to rest, and she lit a cigarette for them to share, thinking that any minute now could be their last. Buck didn't seem to understand what was going on then. As he sat there, he started cracking jokes about racing her to the bottom of the hill, something they used to do all the time when he was well. After the cigarette, they limped on and eventually found a pitiful shelter behind a large fallen log. They stayed there all night, thirsty, weak, and covered in blood. Buck slept in her lap, and Blanche sat there, watching him, even after her legs fell asleep, afraid to move him. And then... In the morning, the gunfire returned. They'd been discovered. Buck managed to raise his pistol and fire a few more times at the posse, but then a bullet punched through his back and stuck somewhere behind his rib cage. He fell over onto Blanche, trying to shield her from the gunfire. Baby, they got me this time, he said. She could hear the bullets whizzing overhead. He told her he loved her. She told him she loved him. And then she stood up. The posse remembers seeing a bedraggled woman stand up from behind a tree stump, wearing filthy breeches and riding boots and dark sunglasses, saying, My husband's on the ground and he can't move! They remember swarming around her, holding onto her arms so she couldn't escape. They remember that when they looked at her husband, they could see right into his brain. Buck and Blanche were taken to the local hospital, where Blanche was allowed to see Buck one last time. When she was taken away to get her eyes examined, she tried to make a break for it. Afterwards, as she was put in handcuffs and hauled off to jail, she screamed toward the room where Buck was, Goodbye, Daddy. Goodbye. Blanche was taken to the Polk County Jail in Des Moines and then extradited to Missouri, where she was being charged with assault with intent to kill for the shootout in Joplin. Buck was taken to another hospital. Eight hours away, Blanche begged for news of him, but no one would tell her what was going on. He died on July 29th with his mother by his side, and his body was taken to Texas for his funeral. On the night that he died, Blanche woke up at 2 a.m. because she heard him calling her name. pled guilty to the charge against her, even though she said privately that she was innocent. She just didn't think the jury would ever believe her. She was a Barrow Gang girl, after all. For her role in the Joplin shootout, she was sentenced to 10 years at the Missouri State Penitentiary, where she began her memoirs, even though she could barely see well enough to write. She had several operations on her left eye, the badly injured one, but none of them were successful, and she eventually lost all sight in that eye. 
In prison, she continued practicing photography, her mother sent her a camera, and kept herself busy by making scrapbooks, reading as much as she could, taking a correspondence course in dancing, and receiving letters from plenty of men who were obsessed with her beauty and her notoriety and wanted to know if she had any plans, you know, after prison. On November 11, 1933, Blanche wrote to her father. She was feeling melancholy that day because of the date. Do you remember where we were four years ago today? She wrote. I met Buck. I never dreamed then I would be here, four years from then, and my darling would be dead and I could never see him again. She signed the letter, Your Lonely Baby, Blanche. In 1935, she appeared at a federal trial where she was sentenced to a year and a day for harboring Bonnie and Clyde, but the sentence was served alongside her initial sentence. Bonnie and Clyde's mothers and sisters were tried alongside her and also given short sentences. By then, Bonnie and Clyde themselves were dead. On May 23, 1934, they were shot while driving yet another stolen car down a little Louisiana road. Clyde was killed first, instantly, and Bonnie had just a split second to realize what was happening before the first of many bullets hit her. In the moment between Clyde's death and hers, the officers who'd ambushed them heard her scream. When Blanche heard the news, she told reporters that they would have wanted to go out that way. I'm glad they were both killed, she said. It was the easiest way out. I'm glad it's over. It is much better they were both killed rather than to have been taken alive. Blanche received an early release for good behavior, got out on March 24, 1939, and went home to her father. The next year, she married a man named Edwin Burt Fraser, who several people thought looked and acted an awful lot like Buck. The two of them had a long and happy marriage. In 1967, the movie Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway was released. Blanche hated the film, in which her character was really a mashup of various women associated with the gang. That movie made me look like a screaming horse's ass, she said. Her husband died in 1969, and in the years to follow, Blanche renewed a friendship with Buck's sister, Marie, and Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean, and the three of them would hang out, drink beer, fish, and reminisce about the past, often chuckling at the fact that the feds were still keeping tabs on them, little old ladies with big, bad pasts. Sometimes Blanche could be petty and would try to pit her friends against each other. Sometimes she was very gossipy. She couldn't bear to throw anything out, a symptom of living through the Great Depression. She liked to drive fast down wild country roads. She liked to try out new restaurants. She liked to collect trinkets from antique stores, just as she did with Bonnie and Joplin so many years before. She died of cancer in 1988. She was born on New Year's Day, and she died on Christmas Eve. People get a lot wrong about Bonnie and Clyde. In the legend, she becomes a cigar-smoking femme fatale who gets her kicks from killing at random, and he becomes her hot-blooded gun boy. In the legend, they're sexy and glamorous and the unpleasant stuff, how they all treated their own bullet wounds with aspirin, how Clyde was brutalized in jail, how they all grew up poor. The unpleasant stuff like that is easily forgotten. And perhaps the one thing that seems the most overblown about their legend, the most Hollywood, is that whole suicide-packed, undying love bit. That's too much, right? That was added after the fact, right? That can't possibly be real. But in fact, the undying love bit was the one thing that people did get right about their story. Bonnie and Clyde, Clyde and Bonnie, the fact that their names are never separated now is perhaps the most truthful part of their legend. You can even see it, you can see its roots in the small print on their original wanted poster, where, at the bottom, it reads simply, Clyde Champion Barrow and Bonnie Parker constantly travel together. 
and traveling right alongside them for four short months was another couple grappling with the beauty and the curse of their own undying love. If people make Bonnie and Clyde these overly glamorous gangsters, they tend to forget about Blanche and Buck altogether. But they were just as real and burned just as intensely for a while. Their love, too, can seem like something out of a movie, something so highly wrought and executed at such a fever pitch that it could never happen in real life. But it did. When they lay on the grass behind that fallen tree, bullets screaming overhead, Buck's blood soaking into Blanche's shirt, here's what they whispered to each other. They said, I love you. No matter what happens, I will always love you. It seems like a line from a book. But just like the gunfire and the bullets and the battery acid and the fear and the shards of glass and the death that eventually came for every person in that gang, that love was real, too. Thank you for listening, my friends. That was the legend, no, the real story of Blanche Barrow and her husband, Buck. Blanche was right there with Bonnie and Clyde uh, as they did some, as they had some of their biggest and bloodiest adventures. And yet, who knows about her? I didn't know about her until recently. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, feel free to follow me on Instagram, Criminal Broads, to see photos of Blanche. There are some incredible photos of her including photos of the moment when she was captured and actually you'll see the sunglasses you'll see the riding breeches and actually um you'll see an expression of horror on her face she thought since she couldn't see she thought the photographer was she thought the when the photographer raised his camera she thought it was a gun and she thought that she and buck were about to just be shot execution style then and there so it's a very poignant and sad photo. I'll put that on Instagram. Uh, what else? Criminal Broads on Instagram, criminalbroads at gmail.com. If you want to say hi, um, iTunes reviews, very much appreciated. Uh, Patreon.com slash criminalbroads. If you want to become a patron and see bonus episodes, including a Bonnie and Clyde themed playlist that I'm making for you all. If you're at the $10 level and up. And speaking of patrons, I have a new batch to thank this month. Um, these are the most criminal of broads. I say that in a loving way. My new patrons, thank you all. I would like to thank Kelly Petre, Chelsea Brotherton, Cindy Snydecker, Wrench Wench, my girl, and Kylan Mills. So thank you all so much. Um, please stay on the correct side of the law, but uh, you'll be getting your criminal nicknames in the mail soon. All right, I think that's all the news that's fit to print. Um, stay cool. Enjoy the rest of your month. I believe spring is coming soon. I have to believe it. All right, have a good one. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.